0: This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For July 21st, 2022, it's the hot, hotter, hottest edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon is... I hope somewhere cooler and in her stead we are so pleased to have Josie Duffy Rice GabFest regular She is a writer sweltering in Atlanta hello Josie
1: hi thanks for having me
0: and John Dickerson is also a writer and many other things for CBS News sweltering in New
2: York City hello John uh, hello heat hot that's At thunder, thunder by for you me. Josie yeah yeah. Wow. There's something special about a morning thunderstorm, though, that is, we had one in New York this week, and it's, I couldn't put my finger on it, but there is something both magical and terrifying about a morning thunderstorm.
0: This week on The Gabfest, the catastrophic heat waves devastating Europe and the United States and what they herald for our future. Then did Joe Manchin destroy Joe Biden's presidency, the democratic agenda, and also human civilization Is he personally responsible for the end of human civilization? We will discuss what Manchin is doing and has done this week. Then the consequences of Dobbs, a drastic decay in health care for pregnant and miscarrying women have become evident across the country. We will talk about the confusion that the Supreme Court's decision has unleashed across the land. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. In Ministry for the Future, I don't know if you guys have read this novel. It's Kim Stanley Robinson's 2021 novel about climate change. It begins with this horrifying scene. It's a really epic set piece scene where a heat wave grips central India and it drives temperatures beyond human endurance. Power fails. And people who are unable to cool themselves die by the millions. It is like an unforgettably terrible image. If there's one thing that sticks with me from that novel, it is this incredible image of this heat wave in India. And the heat waves we're seeing in Europe and the United States are obviously not like that. They are a mild preview, however, of what is to come for the planet. The U.S. infrastructure for now seems stable enough that the heat wave that is affecting 200 million of us Probably will not kill too many people, probably won't disrupt life too much, but it will create sort of unpleasantness and misery. In Europe, by contrast, 2,000 people are already dead from the heat just in Spain and Portugal alone. And kind of more alarmingly, the infrastructure that was not built for heat is in danger. So, John, this heat wave will pass. Like seasons come, seasons change, it will pass in Europe. Do you think there are likely to be any long term policy consequences that come out of this single event or have we gotten past that point and people have just kind of given up on the hope for structural change?
2: I think there will be policy consequences in Europe. There will likely not be policy consequences in the states right now at the federal level. Um, and it also depends on what we mean by policy consequences. I mean, in some sense, there have been policy consequences. If Joe Biden is able to get his uh, executive orders put in place to um, improve emergency response in urban areas to high heat wave, that is a that's a policy response. It's just not one that gets at the underlying issue. What Biden announced on climate was all they were all mitigation measures, with the exception of some wind farm stuff. Um but $2 billion for infrastructures uh, to make cooling spaces is dealing with um, the fire, not co- what caused the fire. In Europe, they are making the link between climate change and these issues more, more directly. Um, but you see the big clash in Europe, uh, which is uh, less acute than we have here, but nevertheless, we see it, which is all the measures that were being taken to anticipate um, or, deal, or deal with climate change as a long-term threat. Um, are running up against um, domestic problems. I think of the farmers in the Netherlands who are protesting um, various policies that are meant to cut emissions. Um, And their argument is you're killing our livelihood. So they face the same pressures there. Um, But uh, there there is much more likely to be a response than here where um, Biden is seeing his ambitious agenda basically shrivel.
0: You the, the temperatures in Europe are very high, but they the United States deals with temperatures like that this all the time. Dubai deals with temperatures like this all the time. Why is it so catastrophic for Europe to face this?
1: Right. I mean, one part of it is um, that a lot of people in Europe don't have air conditioning, right? I mean, there's sort of like this basic infrastructure issue that so many people in the US have access to that um, they don't really have in Europe. And you can imagine like you know, you hear like 103 degrees. I'm like, yeah, that's bad. But I've I've seen that a couple of days in my that's Georgia life. That's a Tuesday life. in Atlanta. Yeah. But you know, without air conditioning, and then you think about people at risk, especially elderly people and um, and kids. Like it, it's just unbearable. My friend uh, Madison Condon is a law professor at BU at Boston University. Her focus is kind of like the market's response to climate change. And one of the things she notes is that a number of kind of financial institutions like BlackRock and Bank of England and places like that, you know, have, are warning, right, that um, that markets are not actually like pricing in climate change risks into their asset prices and into thinking about how they think about the future. And so it's interesting to sort of think about how like, corporate america might actually be taking climate change more seriously in the long term even if they're not doing it particularly well yet if markets are actually considering climate change better than our own elected officials
0: but it's it is interesting that markets don't even bother to do it i just read this novel in fact i'm talking about it on gabfest reads next month invisible things by matt johnson which is an allegory and it's it's an allegory about A colony on Jupiter. Uh, It's not really about the U.S., but it is. It is about the U.S. and it's about why we're incapable of looking at horrors. Why we are incapable at actually looking at something that is existentially horrifying in the face. When we were kids, at least when John and I were kids, we're a little bit older than you, Josie. We we had nuclear war hanging over us, and I did. I guess I did think about that, but I feel like nuclear war actually is relatively small compared to climate change as a as an impact.
2: Look at things like electric cars. I mean, the move to electric cars is happening. The the sales of electric cars are climbing sharply. Tesla is, you know, the hottest car on the market right now. All of that is a market reaction. Um, Whether people who are buying it like them because they're cool or like them because they are not going to contribute to climate change, the market's creating uh, an opportunity.
0: I would just say the market's response is pretty mild compared to the, the threat that the world faces. So there are companies. But BlackRock is kind of a famously liberal financial institution. It's fa- or not famously liberal, but it's famously progressive in how it deals with these things. Sure. It is one institution that is taking this into account and pricing it. They're, the ones that are not are much bigger, and there are many more of them.
1: My understanding from my friend's scholarship, please do not conclude that I've drawn any of these conclusions myself. Um, But uh, my understanding is that um, they are starting to kind of consider this data and incorporate it into their own um, long-term predictions and sort of value-based judgments. But that being said, like they don't always use the right data. Often they use outdated data. Their incentives are misaligned. Corporate America is Thinks short term. They're myopic. They think about like personal profit um, over, you know, what's what's best for people overall. And so, in some ways, like the two goals are kind of at odds with each other. So I think it's both good and and I think if you are someone who's worried about climate change, like we are, you it almost feels like anything is a is a, a gift because we've spent so long doing absolutely nothing. But it still just feels like we're so um, we're so behind in actually being willing to address the problem, much less actually addressing the problem.
0: John, to close this out, there's this foo about whether President Biden should declare a climate emergency that he has not yet done. What would it mean for him to declare one? Why does he keep hesitating?
2: Uh, What it would mean is it would basically allow him to bypass Congress to change some laws, uh, essentially, I think one of them is, has to do with export uh, exporting U.S. oil, which um, and and basically act more unilaterally in addressing climate change. I think they're worried about um, uh, legal challenges to that, uh, but I'm not quite sure. And it seems like he is going to go ahead um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, t- take emergency action. So um, I don't really quite know why he didn't do it, at uh, the first, um, first go round, but, um, uh, they seem to be signaling that he's, that he is going to declare a formal climate emergency. Um, one other thing, and maybe we'll get to this in the, in the mansion, um, piece, but just on the question of, uh, co- collective action to meet long-term threats while Biden's climate agenda is dying in Congress. Um, Congress is nevertheless taking action on the CHIPS Act, which is an effort to um, increase U.S. production of semiconductors. That's not that's that's an acute problem that's happening right now. But that problem is getting better. And the CHIPS Act is only going to help in like five years because it takes a long time to create these chip factories. So and why are they taking action? Because the the lobbying is on the side of the chip manufacturers. Um, it can also be framed as a competition against China. Um, whereas with climate change, the lobbying money is on the side of the U.S. producers. Um, and so we shouldn't, uh, you know, forget the role that um, that lobbying plays in uh, keeping any U.S. response um, bottled up.
0: John, to hear uh, to hear some people on the left tell it, Joe Manchin is either the worst person since Stalin maybe just the worst, second worst person after Putin on Earth. Uh, He has betrayed the Democratic Party, betrayed Joe Biden. He has uh, also doomed the planet to a Dantean hellscape for eternity because uh, he will not step forward to do what? How correct is this sort of hyperbolic response to what Manchin has been doing this week?
2: (laughs) Well, um, I think specifically on the question of climate change, um, I think the, there, the argument rests on a couple of things. One, he, um, Manchin has been resistant, resistant to argumentation when it comes to things like, uh, you know, whether you can um, keep producing coal, but do it in a cleaner way. Um, he believes you can, the consensus of scientists is that, um, the measures that he believes in are, um, impractical and won't provide the results that you want. So that's at the very kind of policy level. The other, the, the harshest argument is that he receives more money from, from fossil fuel producers than any other Senator. He also has a personal interest in, um, the stocks he owns, um, in a coal company. Um, so, uh, that would be, uh, another thing that that liberals argue against him, I think, because you could argue that he's just representing the interests of his state, which um, you know would make him a, uh, a skeptic of of climate um, policies that would hurt his state. But on other issues, he it's harder again for him to defend his positions. Both on, for example, he doesn't support tax increases that were a part of one of the versions of um, what has become of Build Back Better. And he argued that he didn't like the tax increases because of, because inflation was high. But presumably, it would be hard to find economists who would argue that... Um, Lowering the deficit, which is what tax cuts tax increases would do, um, that's usually the thing you do when you want to hurt, when you want to deal with inflation. Is you would lower the deficit. So it's not clear how raising taxes increases inflation. Um, I guess his argument is the only when you raise taxes, you always spend more federal money. Um, but it's not a not a not exactly a clean argument. His arguments also on voting rights um, have been. Um, been pretty weak his argument being that he can put a deal together with republicans uh to improve voting rights is um not likely given that republicans have benefited in a number of states from changing voting rights laws and and republicans in congress are not going to undo what those states have done finally the liberals don't like what he's doing because they don't like the fact that joe biden has a very narrow margin i mean this is senators behave like this it's just that um uh, expectations were too high for what Biden might be able to get through a Senate where he has such a very, very, the, the narrowest possible margin. Is Manchin a villain, Josie?
1: I always try to keep in mind is that Manchin is probably the best senator we're going to get out of West Virginia. So the alternative is not like, you know, it wasn't between him and Bernie Sanders for who was going to be the next, you know, West Virginia senator. Um, so it could be worse. Uh, <laughs> But at the same time, I think he is constantly facing a battle between the likelihood of him getting uh, reelected and doing the right thing. And he chooses reelection every time, which is like, what's the point to me? What is the point of having this job if you stand in the way of any real ability for the Democratic Party to make change and also for the Democratic Party to gain seats in the future, right, to be effective, to look like they're actually getting more done, I do think, like it's worth noting, that the healthcare provisions, this new quote, slimmed down reconciliation bill, which is not much of a reconciliation bill at all, are good. They're important, right? Like they matter. But um, the not just like his logic for um, rejecting important portions of um, the Biden policy goals, but Also, the way he has strung the party along and has just basically weaponized his power by extending talks for months because, like, he doesn't like an insult he read in the, you know, in the in the press or like really just kind of holding people hostage, holding the party hostage. It seems like um, there could be there's a better way to approach this, both in substance and procedure.
0: I guess I think that conclusion makes sense if you assume that Manchin if you assume a kind of more parliamentary system that Manchin as a Democrat has an obligation to go along with the overwhelming will of the party, I think Manchin thinks of himself as a different in a different way it's kind of in the way that senders used to think of themselves as these kind of giants. Uh, who are arbiters of of what the country must do and who act independently and who act in both in the national interest and local interest and in their perceived, you know, kind of uh, their grand theory. I, d- I don't think that if you ask Joe Manchin, he would say, oh, I've, I've refused to do the right thing out of my electoral interest. I think Joe Manchin would say, I have looked at the policies the Democratic Party wants to pursue, and I don't think they are i think they're wrong for the country and wrong for west virginia and so i'm i he su- he's certainly supported lots of the biden agenda he supported overwhelmingly supported lots of the biden agenda and voted for things like that's how they're able to get 50 votes for for uh some of the big bills they passed earlier but he you know reached a point where he was like i don't want to do this and maybe it's cynical maybe it's because he's he, is, he has uh he's tied up in fossil fuels and maybe it's because he is motivated thinking he doesn't want to to john's point about coal that's really interesting that he won't look at what the scientists say about what's realistic or not and that he he reaches erroneous conclusions and certainly his conclusions are economically illiterate this fact that he doesn't want tax hikes because it will hurt inflation is crazy it's just like the opposite of truth but that said like you know I, it feels to me it's it's really easy to pin the blame on Manchin, but this is a murder murder on the Orient Express like every there's so many different forces that are killing build back better. They're killing climate provisions killing that it's not just you know, he's the one that's easiest to pin it on. But it's also that Democrats you know, fa- to go back fail to win majorities, bigger majorities. The structure of the Senate is totally messed up. Schumer bumbled this Biden bumbled this Um like the Republicans, like the Republicans, the poisonous nature of politics, like you can't get you can't get a Republican vote for anything has has made it impossible. So I, I think that the pinning the pinning so much on Manchin and Manchin's villainy and Manchin's cynicism feels to me to be like it's 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 scapegoating is very fun and easy and it's and sure. But it it really is such a larger uh, set of of manslaughters and murders that are taking place other than this.
1: But I would push back on the idea that he thinks he's doing what's best for the country and what's best for West Virginia. I mean, it's possible that that's true. It's also like it usually works that when certain things benefit people and benefit their pockets, they're suddenly very... Um, they suddenly believe in them morally as well. And I mean, just looking explicitly at the climate change provision, like that ability to ignore the evidence and actually not examine (laughs) what is good for um, the country and look around and see what we're facing and decide that the best answer is um, not to act. It's hard for me to believe that that is um, a purely, Uh, judgmental ideological decision from a um from someone who has simply studied the evidence he has an investment in this i think both electorally and and practically
2: david going back to your point i think the when you think about climate change you know focusing too much on mansion has this other challenge that it poses which is that it it the p- politics of climate change are difficult. I mean, um, Jay Inslee tried to run for president on a single climate change um, platform, and he was, I think, the first one to get bounced out of the Democratic primary, which is uh, also combine that with the short-term, long-term issue we were talking about, um, which is that when it comes down to the, the things that have to be done to deal with climate change, it becomes more politically difficult, even outside of West Virginia. Um, All of those things are a part of the complexity of climate change as politics, which um, turning Joe Manchin into a villain um, might obscure. Um, And I'd also add that on the Republican side, it's quite true that on on climate change and other issues, it's very hard to find any Republicans who will work with Democrats. But there are these issues where Republicans have worked with Democrats. I mean, I mentioned silicon chips. There's infrastructure, defense spending. Um, same-sex marriage they're probably going to get 10 votes for gun control so um, it's not totally true that they won't vote for anything with them with democrats
0: i would note the headline this morning that joe manchin and susan collins seem to have a deal around reforming the electoral count act and at least forestalling one of the worst possible outcomes of a presidential election not not to say that their reforms would fix everything that donald trump and his lackeys are trying to break or have broken, but it would fix some small aspect of it and would prevent some of the chaos that we saw on January 6th in Congress from happening again. And it's an example where Manchin's place in the middle enabled him to get something done that people, Democrats value and Republicans value too. GapFest listeners, you know that we now do GapFest reads, GapFest reads, reads, reads. Uh, which is our monthly, that was my attempt at being you, John. That's our monthly special episode we drop, additional episode, where one of us talks to an author of a new book that we are excited about. And on July 24th, so this coming Sunday, Emily will be interviewing Vanessa Waugh about Waugh's book, Forbidden City. So check it out. It'll be in your GabFest feed. And uh, listen to it there. The Dobbs decision has created... Both Tremendous certainty in the country the certainty that Roe is gone. Abortion is now a state matter and tremendous uncertainty the Mosaic across the country or maybe mosaic is the wrong image the Jackson Pollock nature of the state laws that we have is Has been a recipe for chaos and ambiguity and misery for some pregnant women and at the same time, I suspect those who oppose abortion say, oh, we are protecting the lives of unborn children, or now the phrase that I'm now hearing, pre-born children, which is an extraordinary new phrase that, that uh, abortion opponents are using. So, Josie, can you talk about some of the completely predictable chaos that has emerged since the Dobbs decision came out and states began taking their own action on abortion?
1: Yeah, I think um, it falls along like two different two different spectrums, right? The first is that we're seeing um, stories like the one that has gotten a lot of attention over the past few weeks of young people in particular. Being uh, suffering through pregnancy because of rape, often because of incest, and not being able to access care. So there was the 10-year-old out of Ohio um, a couple weeks ago. I read something the other day that said uh, uh, one provider said she's already taken care of three kids under the age of 12 since the Dobbs decision came down, right? So we are seeing, like, children, little kids. I mean, I have a four-year-old, and 10 is— Like, that just feels unfathomable, who are being told, like, something bad happened to you, but let's not make another tragedy out of it by getting an abortion, which is just so—I mean, I don't think I have to explain just how um, horrifying that is. The other thing we're seeing is, uh, surprise, surprise, a lot of um, Republican legislators who have— Enacted these laws over the years to score political points. Um, uh, when Roe was good law, don't actually understand how pregnancy or abortion work or what they mean. And so, lots of um, lots of people who have had. Um, Miscarriages, who have had pregnancy complications, who have gone to, you know, have had ectopic pregnancies where uh, there's still some quote unquote cardiac activity, even though there is no possible way the baby survives, nor that the mother survives um, if the ectopic pregnancy continues. You are seeing their suffering be uh, dragged out for days and weeks more than it needs to be, and their health being at serious risk. I think the other thing that we're going to see, right, is a lot less people willing to do this, to do um, abortion, any sort of um, abortion-related work, including, um, you know, miscarriages. uh, We're going to see providers much less likely to provide that service at all. Um, And the result is already deaths of, and is going to be many more deaths of people who need help,
0: Bridget, our researcher, was telling me just before we came on that there's a phrase in the Missouri law which says that you can, you could treat a, a woman. You can have an abortion for someone uh, who whose fetus is dead or dying, and that Missouri removed the word "dying." It was only dead, so that you literally now cannot, if you have a situation where this is a an embryo that will die, but it has not dead died yet. You can You cannot treat that person. It's just crazy. But John, why do you think the Anti-abortion movement has felt so emboldened post Dobbs to push these laws that are much more uh, draconian and without exception than laws that that they talked about before. Eliminating rape and incest exceptions, eliminating even protections for the life of the mother, uh, laws that can be used to target contraception. Why do you think that that politically that now seems uh, doable? There's not an incentive for bipartisanship in state legislatures, and so. Like, go for what you can, grab anything you can get, grab it all. And there's not a consequence from being, for being extreme there.
2: Well, looking at it from the energy of the fundraising and the energy of the anti-abortion um, uh, coalition that has grown up and been so wildly successful over such a long time, you can't build a machine at, like that and then just shut it off when you win. So the machine needs to keep going. Part of it is motivated by people who believe that at conception you are given a gift from God. So you have people who have a who have that religious view, who don't lose that religious view, even though which is which explains their position on rape and incest. Um, then you have other people who have made a career out of raising money this way um, and and agitating for this position. And so winning breeds more efforts to win. Um, I think what'll be really interesting beyond the um, all of the complexities we've talked about already is how far states push this question of of punishing people involved in out-of-state abortions. Um, so, for example, in Texas, uh, Sidley Austin announced they would cover the cost of out-of-state travel for employees. So is Texas going to punish the law firm Sidley, Sidley Austin, which is, as I recall, a rather big one. And they sent a threatening letter. In, the yeah. AG sent a letter. And so, are you going to punish uh, a big Texas law firm in that way? And then, obviously, also the other legal way this would work out is if um, is to try to keep punishing people who who participate at all in helping with an out-of-state abortion. So, if you were somebody who did a web search in the, in the state of Mississippi um, to help somebody go to New Mexico, um, would that put, make you a part of a criminal conspiracy? Um, and how that all plays out. One is just a legal question. How big can you define the conspiracy? The other is a, is any firm that that operates in one of these states and provides health care presumably would be um, crosswise with these laws. And that brings in the economic interest, which might make um, might change the calculus for some politicians.
1: I think a couple of things worth remembering here one is like when texas passed that law that kind of reshaped our fundamental constitutional understanding of like of standing of the you know legal idea of standing um last year and the supreme court did nothing about it um texas politicians have not really suffered any um any political price for that right this idea that there would be a major backlash um uh, against politicians who are willing to support that law, but from moderate women, for example, that hasn't happened uh, that we haven't seen that and so I think that's part of the reason that people are willing to take the gamble right now because um, in many of these conservative states they're not paying the price. they're just not seeing anybody pay the price for that. I think the other um, the other thing that like keeps, uh, me up at night about this is sort of the um, way in which it grows surveillance culture um, and um, and and the criminalization of. Women and uh, pregnant people, and people who may assist pregnant people, right? And how the fact that we had a Supreme Court that was not willing to reinforce constitutional principles when the Texas law was passed makes me believe they might not be willing to do the same um, if states do try to pass a law that they can criminalize you in Texas for getting an abortion in California. The ways in which this grows, the Punishment infrastructure, but also the infrastructure of control that benefits the government in so many other ways. I think is yet another reason f- that Republican politicians are supporting it. I mean, in a lot, it benefits them in ways beyond just pro life votes at the ballot.
0: I think that one of the again totally predictable consequences, but really bad consequences of this is the climate of uncertainty for healthcare providers. Uh healthcare providers are now in a lot of states are now not sure what they can do. And because they're not sure, they are protecting themselves, which means they're refraining from providing the care that they wish to provide to women in distress because they are fearful, legitimately fearful they will be targeted for lawsuit or prosecution. And this goes back to something which is which I think the Texas law really got to, which is I always felt like it was a, um, a, a trait of Donald Trump's, which is that uncertainty is one of the biggest enemies that, that the world has. That uncertainty is the enemy of regular people. Uncertainty is fear. And to create uncertainty in people and to make people feel like I don't know where I stand, I don't know what I can do, is, is A, it's just cruel because it destabilizes people. It just makes people anxious and that's necessary. And two, it just it's just bad for the world because like it's in sometimes it's almost better to have a very bad law but at least a law that you understand and is clearly enforced than it is to have a situation where you just don't even know what the law is and what could happen to you if you run afoul of it and a lot of things characteristics of states like the soviet union and it's bad times it wasn't so much that that uh that every law was different than the United States' law is that it was very unpredictable when and how they would be enforced. And I feel like that's what we've done with teachers. That's what we've, we're doing with doctors and healthcare professionals in around things now around abortion and, and maternity care with teachers around teaching of race, teaching of, of sex, teaching of gender identity. And it's bad. It's bad, bad, bad.
1: Abortion doesn't seem like one of those issues to me where um, it's sustainable on a state by state basis that like part of the reason Roe was so important was because we recognized that um, it was going to that there was no middle ground on this almost that there was not going to be just satisfaction with well let the states decide pro-life activists have said this they've said we're not done. We will not stop until there is a federal ban on abortion, and I find my in my cynical moments that much, much, much more likely right now than I find the possibility of a row like infrastructure coming back. Um, and even if it does, right, you have to build up that expertise again. You have to find doctors who can provide these services again. You have to train them. You have to you have to make abortion not only legal but available. And I feel worried about the future, even beyond just a state. Um, a state specific, um, you know, uh, a state specific laws. I feel worried about it um, because I'm not sure that, it, that any state will have that right in the near future.
2: The AP did a story um, where they looked at, um, they, they took a set of figures. It was very good. I would have picked some other figures, but they basically looked at individual states. Um, and they looked at the percentage of children in poverty, um, the participant in the women's infants, children, uh, federal assistance, um, basically welfare program, the rate of child abuse or neglect, women experiencing intimate partner violence, low birth weight, women receiving no pre- prenatal care and uninsured children in poverty. And they used those as the measure to look at health of uh, children. And what they found, of course, was That some of the hardest places to raise and have a healthy child are the states with the strictest abortion laws.
1: You know, if we were actually talking about um, not just providing a future for unborn babies, right, but providing, um, you know, not only providing a future for unborn babies when they're once they're born, but even giving unborn babies before they're born the best chance. There are so many other ways to do that and to make that, um, to to help that, then they're than, uh, punishing women who want abortions. Ultimately, this is how we work: we punish people rather than incentivize them, right? We punish people rather than support them to, for doing what they what they what we want them to do. Um, you know, punishment is a really um, curbs a lot of behavior.
0: Let us go to cocktail chatter, John Dickerson. When you are having a, a cooling cocktail on a on a New York rooftop, a New York patio, a New York living room, what will you be chattering about with your beloveds? Uh,
2: well, I the story of the Secret Service and the text that they had oh not my turned over the january, It is, it is so bonkers, and so like it's just bonkers. So here's here's the thing that to me, so the Secret Service was asked. Um, to give information from 24 Secret Service personnel between December 7, 2020 and January 8, 2021. And um, they turned over one text, which was a call from the US Capitol Police to the Secret Service as the uh, Trump supporters were attacking the Capitol. One text. I mean, my kids don't respond to my texts, but even they send more texts than that. And it's just... Amazing, and the shifting number of explanations from the Secret Service as to why they don't have the texts from that period, because they were all erased during a, I mean, they've, they've changed their, it was one point it was that they were, they there was nothing relevant, which makes no sense at all. Second was that there was a an upgrade of the systems um, And both at one point, they seemed to say it was an upgraded systems and sorry, everything was deleted afterwards. But then they also said that agents were supposed to upload anything they had from that period and they just didn't do it. Um, It is, I mean, as Stephen Colbert joked, the the next explanation is going to be that the dog ate the texts. But then what we learn is actually back in February, um, a watchdog agency in the Department of Homeland Security knew about all this in February that these texts were gone. Um, Which adds another, like, kooky, and didn't tell the January 6th committee. I mean, I'm left only with more questions. I don't know. It just, I don't see how they can give the answers they did in in a self-respecting way in this modern world that we're in. Um, I mean, I can understand if this was, like, 1991.
0: Josie, what is your chatter?
1: Uh, my cocktail chatter. Am I allowed to say something by my husband? Is that like not yeah? Allowed? Okay, brings your great. husband's definitely. It? Uh, definitely. Uh, yeah. if he um, married him,
0: he must be. awesome. I did.
1: He is awesome. Um and um, and puts up with me, which it you know is not easy. Uh, and he uh works for New York Magazine. Um, writes for New York Magazine and did a great interview with Larry Wilmore. Um, uh, I think maybe about maybe it came out about last week. Um, and I. You know, when it's so hard to find things that are, like, really engaging and interesting and also don't make you super depressed, uh, this, um, this um, interview is one of them. He kind of traces his history in, um, in television since the early 1990s, maybe the 1980s, and it's fascinating. Um, this is a guy who has, like, played a massive role, especially in black television over the years, um, and it still has such an influence, and the interview is uh, really great.
0: Do you want to say your husband's name?
1: Uh, my husband's name is Zach Chaney Rice. I taught him everything he knows. He won't admit that, but uh, it's true.
0: My uh, chatter quickly. I did a really fun podcast uh, with Josh Zepps, who's an Australian. He's an Australian podcaster. He has a podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations, very aptly named podcast, which is a extremely tense, direct conversation. He's just just a really straightforward person very funny very smart my actual chatter though the thing i was thinking about what did i want to chatter about and what if i actually spent the last week doing and most of i've spent most of the last week truly watching the world track and field championships i don't know if you guys are fans uh it is the world athletics championships are taking place in eugene oregon uh and the first time these championships have ever been held in the U S and so it's, it's 10 days or so of track and field competition and, and NBC and its affiliates and Peacock are have all of it going and it's fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. I spent four hours the other night watching women's high jumping. The women high jumpers are weirdos. They're so weird. They all have these odd body manners and they're always constantly. it's a super psychological sport so they're visualizing how they're going to do their jump and you see it in person and they are they also have these incredible bodies because they're all about like six feet tall and super angular and incredibly flexible and th- they're amazing and then there's the sh- the men shot putters who are t- some other entire species of person and the runners who are so beautiful, just watching these people run around the track is it's glorious. It is glorious. Uh, listeners, you also have been sending us great chatters. You email them to us at gabfest at slate.com or you tweet them to us at, at slate gabfest. And our chatter this week comes from Mark Wegner.
2: Hello, Gabfest. My chatter today is about the opening earlier this month of the archives of the Atlantic magazine every issue of the monthly from 1857 to present is available in a well-organized place the archive is searchable by topic author and date i'm just getting started but i've already found interesting articles about the assassination of james garfield in the november 1881 issue hat tip to candace millard's excellent destiny of the republic for sparking my interest in him there's a profile of general jeb stewart from 1886 and an August 1939 man-on-the-street interview with Germans convinced of Hitler's peaceful intentions. Contemporaneous history fascinates me, and I think you'll find it interesting, too. I love the show. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: I'm also so excited about these archives. I just, um, I'm thrilled. This is like how I like to spend my Saturday nights. I spend a lot of time on newspapers.com just searching old topics, so this opens up a whole new world.
0: I do this tour, I take this, I lead this tour of the Civil War fort in DC and one of the highlights and I have some materials, written materials is there's a battle that took place in DC in 1864 and Abraham Lincoln went to this battle and Harper's Weekly, Harper's, uh, what we now know as Harper's Magazine, covered it. And there's an etching of Lincoln at the battle or a, a depiction of what Lincoln would have looked like at the battle, which I show to everybody. And uh, it's always good for a laugh because it's a very artistic, uh, there's a lot of artistic liberty taken. But I love the idea like this thing, just it's the same form that we read today. You know, we still read magazines today and we look at it and it's it's meeting the same emotional psychological intellectual need as it did 150, 170 years ago. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researchers: Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGapfest and tweet, and chatter to us there. For Josie Duffy Rice, the always delightful and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. I think Emily will be back. Hey Slate Plus, how are you? Uh, we have a, a topic inspired, I think, by Bridget about childhood and summer, and particularly what memories stick with us from childhood summer and why they're important and what we learn from that or how that shaped us. Anyone Anyone want to start? Josie, do you want to start?
1: My main memory of summer is going to visit my grandmother in Minnesota, um, where. We would stay with her for weeks at a time, Um, and she's 92 now. She has Alzheimer's. She lives here in Atlanta now, but one of my main things I remember is that she lived on the 20th floor of a building, and one day the elevator was out, and she must have been 60 at the time, and we climbed up those 20 flights of stairs, and this actually wasn't particularly good memory, but it was a – I do think of it all the time because I. it reminds me to get in shape. My 60-year-old grandmother took those 20 flights of stairs like it was nothing, and I can maybe take two <laughs> right now, and I'm slightly more than half that age. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's my main great memory of childhood. Uh,
0: I thought it was going to be she was made, she made you sweet tea, you sat on a porch, you listened, no, watched the No, we did fireflies. get a lot of ice cream,
1: though. <laughs> yeah, she did let us have ice cream in the morning because she said it has calcium in it. And I still live by that rule all these years later. So uh, real impact on my life.
0: That's awesome.
2: It was you great. You have very
0: strong bones. You're totally out of shape, but your bones are yeah, super strong.
2: Ex- exactly. Exactly. John. Well, I, as a, first as a broad point, um, uh, when I wrote about my daughter going to camp, uh, which is now I guess I wrote that 10 years ago. Um, there's a guy, Michael Thompson, who wrote a book called Homesick and Happy about going to camp. Um, and um, it had this wonderful um, uh, finding in it, which I um, which I have keep uh, referring to in the subsequent 10 years, which is that when they interviewed adults and asked them to remember a moment that was powerful in their recollection from childhood not just in summers but in general that something like 70 percent or more of the adults said it was a memory where parents weren't around um, and so the summer has always and, and uh, in the context of camp summers always seemed to me to be the time where you know you were alone and doing crazy things or just under the steam of your own imagination. Um, And that's how identities are formed and how strong memories are formed. So I just remember, you know, endless stretches of either just like goofing around in the neighborhood or being away at camps and just like all day long, just playing. I mean, until you were just wrung out from, you know, eight hours of physical exertion. Um, And that that probably hasn't, you know, I don't know when was the last time I did that. Um, probably not. I don't know. Twelve, thirteen, just a full day of that. Um, anyway, so I just remember that exertion feeling and the and the lack of parents, which in my case was often the case, even when it was fall and winter. But um, nevertheless, it's particularly so in summer.
0: That is so profound, John. I was trying to think. I, I as I started to think about this this uh, prompt I realized so many of my vivid memories of childhood are from summer and, and they don't have my, and I didn't think about it. Most of them do not have my parents and that, 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 that must be connected in that sense of autonomy. I was thinking like there was this time when I was a teenager, probably 16 or something and my parents were away and I guess my, maybe my brother and I were home alone for a few days and, our cat got really sick and I had to take our cat to the vet and have her put down or have him put down, I should say. And as a 16 year old, like I'd never dealt with death even, you know, on any scale and to, to do that and to have the responsibility for it was just, it just sticks in my memory. So strongly being in that room with the vet and, and in Hartley's last minutes. And that was like really important. And it was really, it would have been much, much less, uh, vivid if had I'd gone with my parents or had my mother had to do it or whatever it was.
1: The other thing about that is just like now as a parent trying to figure out what to do with my kids in the summer, it's like, you know, just trying to work and figure out what you do for those whatever 12 weeks or it feels like 900 weeks. To
0: 900 me. weeks. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, it just is such a different lens on You know, I remember being a kid being like, there's nothing to do. I'm so bored. And I'm like, that's, you have no idea how stressful it was for your parents to try to figure out what to do with you for all that time.
2: I think summer gets you acquainted with the, basically the arc of life. Summer's the first time when you're a kid, you realize you start like, oh my God, I got all these days. I'm going to do this and this and this. I'm going to do all this stuff. It's going to be great. Oh my God, it's going to be wonderful. And then suddenly there's like one week left in the summer and you think, oh, damn, what did I, like, I, I didn't do all this stuff, and school's going to start again, and, oh, they were, mm-hmm. what did I do? And and that's basically life.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, no. Don't tell me that. Uh, it's true, though. It is true. <laughs>
2: life is one long summer. And, yeah, and at the end, you're like, oh, my God, I didn't go, you know, uh, do that cool thing I wanted to do. I So um, there you go. Huh. I don't,
0: I'm not sure. I, I love the metaphor. I'm not sure I feel like that. I always was excited for school to start again. I was one of those kids. Oh, the other thing that I wanted to, to just harken back to in my own, really just to record this for posterity, just so that it's known. And also in case this person is out there, I just am really curious what happened to him. Is that I went to sleepaway camp and I really didn't like sleepaway camp. And which is weird. I think if I went back now, I would really love it. But I went at the wrong age or something. I went. I was too pubescent or something when I went. And so I was in a bunk at uh, Camp Cabian in New Hampshire in in 1983 or 1984. And there was a bunch of Venezuelan kids who were in the camp. It was mostly like WASPy kids from Boston, and New York, and then a few of us from DC and then in New Jersey. Uh, Brian Schwartz and Paul Kendi from New Jersey. Shout out to you guys. I wonder what happened to you. But there was this guy who bunked above me named Oswaldo Rangel. And he was such a turd. And he would, he bunked above me. And in the middle of the night, he would take a flashlight, shine it in my face and yell, Maricon! Which is like a slur, in case you don't know. It's a Spanish slur. And it's just like, what the fuck? fuck with this guy and it's really stuck with me like of all the people I've ever met in my life this is the one person who I'm like why would you do this I'm sure he's turned into a lovely person I'm sure Oswaldo Rangel is like in the whatever like kind of Venezuelan democracy movement or something but he was just he was so unpleasant it was awful <laughs> that's that Taught is all. You some
1: important life lessons you know
0: I don't know what it is but it's it's like so vivid I can I can feel that light in my face right now I can hear his voice Whereas I can't remember anything about, you know, the entirety of my, my year eighth, eighth grade. That is all goodbye slate plus have a great summer.